You are now listening to the intersectionvictoria.com podcast. A place where faith meets facts. A podcast made for the thinking Christian and the skeptic. Welcome to our series entitled The Man Who Split History in Two, where we take a historical analytical view of the life of Jesus. I believe in a God who holds the heavens and the earth in existence. I believe that on the basis of rational evidence. The Kramasinger came out with a conclusion, and Frederick Coyle both said this, there is no way to explain the origin of life, and I'm quoting Coyle now, in an earthbound explanation. Something extraterrestrial had to be brought into this plane, to this picture. And welcome back, nerds. This is part two of our series. Uh, in part one, we looked at the Roman and Jewish as government and religious leaders' um, historical references to early Christianity and Christians. In part two, we're going to look at Gnostic Christians and extra-biblical Christian sources that talked about Jesus. There is more, as you can see, there's way more about Christ in, in, in history than just what's written in the New Testament. We'll look at the New Testament next series, but now we're moving on and we're looking at Christian sources and semi-Christian sources about Jesus that were early uh, that are not the New Testament itself. So first up is the Gnostic sources. So now that we've explored what the enemies of Christianity had to say about Jesus and his followers. That was part one. Let's look at some friendlier sources. Now, early in Christianity's history, a sect broke off and carved its own path. Members of this alternative branch were known as Gnostics. Now, the word Gnosis, from which we get Gnostics, is the Greek word that means knowledge. And these guys were basically a cult that believed they had special secret knowledge about Jesus that the regular Christians didn't. So they were not an accepted part of Christianity, but they believed in the supernatural Christ. So we'll look at some samples from the texts known as the Gnostic Gospels to see if Jesus had a reputation as a miracle worker. So in this section, really what I'm going to call it is, did Jesus have a supernatural reputation as a miracle worker? during the first two centuries following his life. Keep in mind that the texts we will examine are believed to have been written during the second century, over a hundred years after Christ, which means their authors would not have been alive during Christ's lifetime, so they'd be considered secondary sources. First up, I want to look at a Gnostic gospel entitled The Gospel of Truth. Now, this was probably written by a Gnostic teacher, Valentius, who lived in A.D. or C.E. 135 to 160. This quote-unquote gospel states, amongst other things, that Jesus was divinity made flesh. So they believed in Jesus as Son of God, and that he was nailed to a tree for the salvation of many. Next up is the gospel known, uh, the Gnostic gospel known as the Apocryphon of John. Now, it's attributed to a Gnostic leader known as Saturninus, and he's estimated to have taught somewhere in the, in the year 120 to 130. Now, this text 
did pass through many revisions, so its, its authenticity is in question. But the portion of interest in the Apocryphon is a mention of a confrontation between the Apostle John and a Pharisee, in which the Pharisee makes fun of John's belief in a resurrected Christ. So there again, you see, there's evidence that even the Gnostics, you know, less than 100 years after Christ, were noticing that the Christians were known to believe in a resurrected Christ. Christians, right from the get-go, were known to believe in a miracle-working resurrected Christ. That seemed to be the center of Christians' belief. Those who knew Jesus, who lived during his generation, their overwhelming opinion of Christ was that he was not an ordinary guy, that he was a miracle-working and eventually resurrected Messiah. Moving on to a Gnostic gospel known as the Gospel of Thomas. Now, there's a self-described text in here called Jesus's quote-unquote secret sayings. And quote-unquote Thomas, it's supposed to be the Apostle Thomas's gospel, but there's no evidence that it is. And it comes much too late, long after Thomas had died, for us to have any reason to believe this was the authentic Apostle Thomas. And it reports that when Jesus asked his disciples, who am I? That although they responded in varying fashion, they called him an angel, a philosopher, an indescribable consummation of the prophets, but they did not have an ordinary view of him. Now, Jesus described himself, according to the Gospel of Thomas, as, quote-unquote, I who am the all, the son of man and the son of his father. So again, they did not see Christ as someone who was just simply like me and you or just a good teacher like Confucius or Buddha. And next up is the Gnostic Gospel entitled The, the Treatise on Resurrection. Now, it has an unknown author, and it de dedicates this treatise to a man named Reginos. Um, probably dated late 2nd century AD, so the 100s AD, that late in the 100s AD, aka CE for you, uh, for you youngsters. And the essential date of the text is that Jesus was, quote-unquote, Lord in flesh, Son of God. Further in the letter, the author uses strong Gnostic terms, such as the notion that Jesus' resurrection ensured, quote-unquote, restoration to the Pleroma, and that he was, quote-unquote, originally a seed of the truth. So again, one thing you see emerging from the Gnostic texts, the Gnostics themselves do not paint a picture of Christ as a moral teacher, a la Plato, Socrates, Confucius. They echo the New Testament themes on Jesus' miracle-working reputation. Now, skeptics will say that, hey, look at these Gnostic Gospels. Did the, did the Jesus movement have a unified view or belief? The oldest copies of the Gnostic Gospels that we currently possess date back to A.D. or C.E. 350 to 400. In other words, if you go to a museum today, you can see these Gnostic Gospels yourself. Now, the oldest ones we physically possess are from the year, somewhere between the year 350 and 400. Now, that's not when they were originally written. Okay, we, All ancient texts were written long before the oldest copies we still physically possess and can go and touch and look at today. Because time erases and destroys uh, texts, doesn't preserve them 100%. So you have to look at you know, historical and textual criticism. And when we do that with the Gnostic Gospels, we can see evidence that the, they lived in the early 
and mid parts of the 2nd century, so the 100s AD. This means that the alternative gospels, these alternative gospels, circulated about 70 years to one century after Jesus' lifetime. Now, remember that in part one, we saw that the enemies of Christianity, aka the Roman and Jewish governments, mentioned that Jesus' Jesus's generation had Christians who believed in his supernatural miracles and claimed to divinity. We also know from the New Testament letters that the Gnostic sect sprang up after Jesus' lifetime. Therefore, Gnostic texts come after an even earlier version of Christianity being around. But that earlier version also had a supernatural view of Christ. The supernatural view of Christ was not invented by the Gnostics. It was just twisted and sort of plagiarized. So again, there's no real lack of unity in the views of Christ. There's divergent characteristics and details, but the miracle work in Christ is the central view and earliest view of Christ, as noted by, like I said, Roman Jewish sources that were not friendly to Christianity, heretical sects like the Gnostics, and obviously from the earliest Christians themselves. So there really is a sort of, when you look at all the sources, there's a convergent, not a divergent view on the essence of who Christ was. All right, so let's move away from Gnostic sources into the Christian sources, the non-biblical Christian sources. Now, there's a, nam a man named Phlegon who was born in about the year 80, so AD 8080, or current era 80. He was an employee of the Emperor Hadrian, the Roman Emperor. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, why would I include him here under Christian sources when he was a Roman working for Rome, which is what we covered in part one, all the Roman sources? Well, quite simply, we have no, no record of Phlegon's works. They're all completely gone. We just piece them together from, their, from people who quote him that come even later than him. So we're dealing with a tertiary source and the exclusively it was the Christian church fathers who quote him. So I'm going to include it as a Christian source. Now his works establish that Jesus's earliest public image was not just of a good moral man, but of a miracle worker. That's what stands out the most in Phlegon's works. Now throughout history, we've had a ton of moral reformers. We've had Confucius, we've had Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., etc., what you're seeing here is that the earlier you go in history, in historical texts, you cannot seem to find. As a matter of fact, there, there is no evidence of his reputation being simply that of a moral reformer. The earliest historical evidence always points to a miracle-working Christ. That seems to be the standard accepted position of early, uh, of people living within the century or the century after Christ's lifetime. Now, Church Father Origen, who lived from A.D. 185 to 254, he quotes Phlegon quite a bit. And in his quotes of Phlegon, we see that he claimed that Jesus had made some prophetic predictions during his lifetime that had come true since his lifetime. And both Origen and Julius Africanus, in their works, comment on Phlegon's mention of a strange eclipse taking place at the full moon Passover during Tiberius Caesar's reign. Now, obviously, this fully parallels the gospel accounts of a, an, an eclipse, uh, a lunar eclipse, which would be in 
possible some form of eclipse was mentioned in the Gospels at the time of Christ's crucifixion, which, according to Scripture, is a sort of a supernatural uh, event to commemorate the death of God's Son at the hands of men. Now, this would be impossible during a full moon because the sun and the moon would not would be in diametrically opposed positions. But again, here's another source uh, historically to back up the view that is written in Scripture. Now, Origen also mentions Phlegon's report of Christ showing his wounds in a post-resurrection appearance to his followers. So then, when you're cross-referencing the Gnostic writings and Phlegon's writings, there's four things we can establish. Number one, early Christians and Gnostics didn't believe Jesus to simply be a man. He was rumored to be everything from a prophet to a supernatural godlike being, to the actual Son of God. Number two, Christians were ready to die simply for refusing to stop their worship of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Number three, a popular widespread belief was that Jesus had been crucified and killed and his followers claimed to have seen him alive afterwards. Number four, even Gnostics often believed Jesus to be a piece of God or God himself in human form. All right, let's move on to the, uh, the last big batch of Christian non-biblical sources uh, about Christ. Now, we're going to look at the writings of what's called the early church fathers. So, and we're going to present, we're going to, what we're going to present in this section is a fraction of what actually exists. And we're just making selections from writings that appear fairly early, so therefore closer to Christ's lifetime. And we're just making a historical claim here that, again, Jesus existed, number one, and number two, his main reputation was that he was supernatural. So, remember that when the, the, now the term early church fathers refers to the generations that immediately followed that of Jesus and the apostles. So, the men who were born after Jesus' lifetime, but were educated by the apostles directly. Now, obviously, in turn, eventually, that second generation of Christians also died, but not before they trained the third generation of Christians, so on and so forth. So, about the first 200 years of Christian, Christian generations, so whatever that is, three, four, five generations of Christians, are referred to as the Church Fathers. Now, Clement of Rome, who died around A.D. 102, so he would have been alive during the time of the Apostle John, was an elder of the Roman Church. Now, he most likely knew some of the Apostles personally, because he was a higher up in the Church, so the notion that he never met any of the Apostles is unlikely. So, around A.D. 95, he wrote a letter to the Church at Corinth. Now, this is the earliest non-New Testament Christian writing that we have, historically. And its content reinforces a number of Orthodox Christian beliefs. One, he says that the quote-unquote good news, or the gospel, was the central Christian message. He says, number two, that this news was taught to the disciples by Jesus himself, live and in person. Three, that Jesus' resurrection was an assurance that his teachings were trustworthy. And four, that as the gospel spread, churches with designated ministers were established. So again, none of this contradicts the New Testament view of Christ. This is all Orthodox Christian beliefs by somebody outside of the Bible. Uh, next would be Ignatius, church father Ignatius. Now, he died around A.D. 117, current era 117. And he was the bishop of Antioch. Now, Ign Ignatius was executed by Rome 
for being a Christian leader. And en route to his punishment, he sent six letters to different churches and one to an individual named Polycarp, who was another church father. Now, these texts are dated at about 110 to 115, the year 110 to 115 AD or CE, and establish five following facts. One, Jesus was of the lineage of David and born of Mary in a virgin birth. Two, Jesus was baptized by the apostle or the baptized John the baptizer. Three, Jesus actually lived, breathed, drank, ate, walked and talked on earth as a full-fledged human. Four, Jesus was crucified and killed at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Five, Jesus was raised from the dead and was seen, touched, and talked to by the apostles. Again, non-Christian, sorry, non-biblical, but fully biblical-friendly early historical sources by people, by the way, who had nothing to gain and everything to lose by following Christ and the Christian doctrines. It was a death penalty in Jerusalem, and throughout the Roman Empire for the first 300 years after Christ to be a Christian, let alone a hardcore Christian leader. Next is Polycarp that Ignatius was writing to. Now, Polycarp is thought to have lived between A.D. or C.E. 69 to 155. Uh, he was a disciple of John, the Apostle John, and he was the leader, Polycarp that is, of the church at Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey, which was then the Greek world, the Byzantine Empire. Um, he taught Irenaeus of, of Lyon, and he was publicly, Polycarp that is, questioned in a Roman stadium where he refused to denounce Christ and was then burned at the stake and speared. The church at Smyrna gave an account of his martyrdom, explaining that he refused to denounce Christ. Next on our list is Quadratus, and he wrote between A.D. 117 to 138. Uh, he's one of Christianity's earliest scholars. Quadratus wrote to Emperor Hadrian, around the year A.D. 125. This work is the only is only preserved through a later work by a Christian known as Eusebius, who, who quotes Quadratus's defense of the Christian faith. The quotation he makes of Quadratus, who is arguing against Hadrian in, in the letter to Hadrian, so Quadratus sends a letter to Hadrian, which is quoted by Eusebius. Eusebius says that Quadratus said to Emperor Hadrian five things. One, Jesus performed miracles. Two, some people were healed by Jesus. Three, some people were raised from the dead by Jesus. Four, these miracles were done publicly for everyone to see. Five, some of the people who saw such miracles were still alive by the time Quadratus was alive and doing his research. So just like Luke in our New Testament, in Acts and the Gospel of Luke, compiled his evidence by talking to people who had eyewitnessed Christ's ministry and life, so did Quadratus, so did non-biblical authors. We have writings about Christ outside of Scripture. Next will be Church Father Barnabas. Now, he wrote in about the A.D. or C.E.'s 130. Now, a commonly accepted date for the quote-unquote epistle of Barnabas is about 130 to 138, current era A.D., this work was aimed at opposing Judaism and denouncing legalism within the new Christian movement. Five basic, five basic things can be drawn from his writings. One, Jesus became a real, live, breathing human being. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't uh, an angel. Two, that he preached, taught, and performed miracles in Israel. Three, Jesus loved others. 
4, Jesus appointed several apostles to minister his message. And 5, he suffered on a tree, an obvious, an obvious reference to crucifixion. Next up is church father Justin Martyr. Now, he died around somewhere between the year 100 to 166. There's some real shoddy historical details on him for some reason. Now, he revolutionized Christian literary work. He was the first true author, uh, intellectual of the early church. Instead of repeating doctrine and basic tenets of the new religion, Martyr detailed his philosophical journey from skeptic to major Christian apologist of the second century or the 100s AD. Remember, when we say second century, we don't mean like 200s, 250. That's the from 0 to 199, from the, the, year, the, zero, the year 0 to 99 is the first century, obviously. Just like from 0 to 9 years old, you're in your first decade of life. So your teens are your second decade of life. So this is the 100s in which he lived. Now, those of you who are Christ Christians in the modern time, you may have heard of C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian thinker, who also was a skeptic and an atheist who, who logically found his way into conversion to Christianity. Well, this is exactly what you're seeing here with Justin Martyr. He's one of the first C.S. Lewis's we have in church history. One of his famous works is called the quote-unquote First Apology. And he's addressing the Emperor Antonius Pius, a, and he's relating the following facts, four things. Justin Martyr says that Jesus, Jesus was born of a virgin. Number two, Jesus descended from Jesse of the tribe of Judah. Number three, Bethlehem was his birthplace, a few miles from Jerusalem. And four, that the location and facts about Jesus' birth could still be verified by consulting the records of Cyrenius, the first procurator of Judea. So a Roman, he's saying a Roman employee has records about Christ that you can still check at the time of Justin Martyr's writing. So, you know, 60 plus years after Jesus' lifetime. Now, Justin Martyr also referred to a work known as the Acts of Pontius Pilate. And we have absolutely no record of that. We just have Justin Martyr's quotations of such a, supposedly what Pontius Pilate would have written about Christ. And Justin says that in that work, there's reports of Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, furthermore, Justin Martyr mentions the Orthodox Christian tenets concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he'll, he, he goes on to say five more things. Justin, that is. Number one, Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecies. Two, Jesus was nailed to a tree through his hands and feet. Number three, his garments were taken from him at the crucifixion. Four, Jesus raised, was raised from the dead and taught his disciples the prophecies which he believed he had fulfilled. And five, that Jesus ascended to heaven and his apostles went forth proclaiming the Christian gospel. In yet another work by Justin Martyr, entitled Dialogue with Trifo, Justin Martyr writes for Jews, specifically, in an attempt to convert them. And he says six things in, those, in that specific writing. Number one, Arabian Magi visited and worshipped Jesus at the time of his birth. And of course, all these parallel the New Testament accounts. For those of you familiar with the New Testament, all these things that Mar Justin Martyr is saying parallel the New Testament, showing that the New Testament was around at least before his lifetime. So it just pushes the, it pushes the New Testament account to earlier and earlier, closer to Christ's lifetime. Number two, he says in the dialogue with Trifo, Jesus was indeed crucified, nailed in his hands and feet. 
Three, his robe was gambled for by his captors. Four, Jesus predicted his own resurrection, which he performed three days after his death. Five, Justin Martyr reminds the Jews that they had spread lies to explain away the empty tomb of Jesus. Now, we saw in the first part of this series, in which we looked at Roman and Jewish sources, where we see evidence of Jews producing works to try and explain away the fact that Jesus' tomb was found empty by those who had him crucified. And sixth and final point from Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo, the disciples reported that they had witnessed Jesus' ascension into heaven. Now, overall, there exists an enormous amount of other literature from these early Christian fathers. In fact, let's hear what a historian by the name of Sir David Dalrymple has to say. The number of such quotations of the Bible known from early Christian literature is vast. Over 36,000 quotes are known from before the Council of Nicaea in 325 Anno Domini. Suppose that the New Testament had been destroyed, and every copy of it lost by the end of the 3rd century, could it have been collected together again from the writing of the fathers of the 2nd and 3rd centuries? As I possess all the existing works of the fathers of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, I commenced to search, and up to this time I have found the entire New Testament, except 11 verses. This is, this is amazing, because no other ancient text has this going for it. See, we not only, and we'll see this in the next section, part three, where we talk about what the New Testament itself is, but no other ancient text is fully quoted verbatim by another text, a complete recreation of a text just amongst quotations by others, especially not as early as we, we find these in the, church, the earliest church father writings. That is, un, this is literally unique to the New Testament. Now, when you, if you crack open your New Testament right now off your bookshelf or go online and look at the New Testament table of contents, you see a list of books in a specific order. A very interesting point is that the, the books we have in the order that we have have been that way for a very long time. Christianity did not put the Bible together at the Council of Nicaea, as many critics like to say, in the year 324. Uh, after, you know, in the year 313, Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, and then obviously Christians could come above ground and start forming institutions and scholarly circles, etc. And they formed the Council of Nicaea in 324 AD, in which they all agreed on what the New Testament was. They may have agreed officially as a world conference which books they would allow into the New Testament in 324 AD, but what they were doing was not inventing the Bible for the first time. They were confirming what they'd already all known for centuries. Um, one, of the way, one of the cases we can build for the New Testament being in existence long before the Council of Nicaea in 324 is the existence of something called the Moratorian Canon Fragment. It's called Moratorian because it's named after the guy who found it, Moratori. And he found it in the year 1740. What he found was a parchment that is dated back to the year, the 700s AD. So he found a thousand-year-old document. Now, as we've said before in this, in this, in these series, just because the oldest 
copy we have of something goes back only to a certain date, it's clearly a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And the original writing are, are always much earlier. We do that with Homer's Iliad. We do that with Caesar's Gaelic Wars historical analysis. We do it with all ancient texts. So because of internal textual and historical cues, uh, scholars place the original Moratorian Canon Fragments writing at the year 170. So 150 years before the Council of Nicaea. What is the Moratorian Canon Fragment? Well, it lists the New Testament books exactly as we have in our modern day Bible in the same order. So we know that we can push back the the canon or the table of contents of our New Testament quite a ways back. Now, there are some exceptions. For example, the book of James and Hebrews and one of Peter's epistles and one of John's letters is missing from the Moratorian canon fragment. But remember, we know that all the books we have in our New Testament list today were in existence before the Council of Nicaea because the church fathers quoted from every single book we have and almost the entirety of every single book we have was quoted by the Church Fathers. So, in summary, three basic things emerge from the early Church Fathers. We know that the late 1st and 2nd century church fathers provide an overwhelming amount of extra-biblical information about Jesus' life, which fully parallels and corroborates the New Testament's supernatural claims about Christ. Two, all the New Testament is directly quoted in the writings of the early church fathers, except for 11 verses, and this is before the Council of Nicaea in the early 320s. The Muratorian Canon Fragment lists or alludes to the New Testament books as we have them today in our Bibles. The official Christian story of a miracle working Christ, including the New Testament accounts being in existence very early in Christianity, they don't appear 300 years after Christ, which is commonly claimed by, our, by, by skeptics of Christianity. There are very early sources on the books that were included in Scripture, as we have them today, preserved all the way back during the time of the 1st and 2nd century Christians. And there is no view of Christ. The earlier you make your research, the earlier you cast your net for historical data, you do not find a single account of Christ as a simple, ordinary, moral reformer, a good man, quote-unquote. His reputation as a supernatural person is the earliest view of him. There is no evidence to the contrary. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you in part three where we start to look at the New Testament itself. Thank you for joining us. Please visit our website and social media. Find us at intersectionvictoria.com. Goodbye.